This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Mike Giglio and we're doing something a bit different. We're going to speak mainly about his experiences covering the war on ISIS that he's written about in his book. This is not an advertisement. He hasn't asked me to advertise anything. It's nothing like that. It's just I've been following Mike's work for a very long time. I think he's a very good journalist and he's written this book, Shatter the Nations. And it's all about the fights against ISIS but from an on-the-ground perspective. And he's going to be speaking to us about why that is so important. There are too many so-called experts running around who have actually never, ever even been in the countries they're talking about. Mike has been to all of the front lines and has seen it all from the ground up. If you like what we're doing, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash popular front. Um, all right, Mike. Um, so I, I, normally I wouldn't do this, but, you know, the book looks really interesting from the small part I've read and, you know, from what I've spoken to friends about it. Maybe you can explain um, about this new book you've got coming out, Shatter the Nations. Yeah, happy to. It's um, it's based on six years of my reporting uh, from Iraq, Syria and Turkey. And it's the story of the rise and fall of the caliphate that ISIS declared. Um, and what, what's different, I think, about this book is that every chapter is uh, through on the ground reporting. Um, so the book tells part of the story through ISIS and the smugglers and the, um, the traffickers that were working for it. And then you kind of go on the other side of the mirror um, in, in, in the chapters with uh, the soldiers who were fighting ISIS. And so the real like, protagonists of the book, I think, are the Iraqi Special Operations Forces and the Kurdish counterterrorism units that, that really like, led the fight on behalf of America and Europe. Yeah, let, let's maybe talk about the smugglers a little bit first, actually, because I read one of your pieces recently. I forget who it was for. It wasn't a new piece, but it was um, about the smugglers in Turkey, uh, or at least on the border, helping ISIS kind of get past and get into Turkey. Uh, maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah, I, I mean, that was a big part of my life when I lived in uh, in Turkey, was, was going down um, to southern Turkey, where, which is right on the border with northern Syria, and was kind of like the, and still is really the gateway for the rest of the world to ISIS and the war in Syria. Um, and I think that the, the story you read, I actually did in, in 2017. So by that point, I've been doing this for about five years, you know, work, you know, getting to know the smugglers and the traffickers who operate down there. Um, and, you know, over the t- course of the entire conflict with ISIS, you know, they, they sort of use this underground, um, economy and, and, and these smuggling and trafficking networks to, to do everything to, um, from, you know, selling oil and selling artifacts um, to bringing people into Syria, you know, from all over the world. And then what was happening in 2017 as the U.S. and the Kurds in Syria were closing in on Raqqa and, like, making their last push to take back the, the rest of ISIS territory was ISIS uh, was, was sending fighters back out again using the same smuggling networks. Um, and, and so they were, they were able to, um, have a lot of their fighters and senior members escape into Turkey. And then from Turkey, they can go elsewhere into the world, join up with their affiliates in Libya or in Africa or in Asia, or sort of just kind of wait out the the storm. Right. Um, And you you actually met some of the smugglers, right? You interviewed them face to face. Yeah, that, that, that was, I, I did that for years. 
How was that? What are they like? Because I think people have this idea that, you know, smugglers are these kind of bandits. You know, I've met people smugglers yeah. in the Middle East. They're just like normal guys that you would think drive a taxi. I mean, they are, right? Like, I mean, smugglers remind me of journalists. And, you know, like, I think we're sort of like naturally get along because they tend to like present to the world like regular people. And then they, they also, you know, are really comfortable just like breaking rules where they can. Um, and so... <laughs> You, you, like the, you know, for example, like the, the, the reason I think I, and I explain this in the book, the reason I think ISIS was so, has been so good about um, using smuggling networks and surviving is that, you know, it's, it's actually really rare that like a smuggler will just work for ISIS. You know, they're able to tap people like on the edges of the conflict who just want to make money. Um, and because so many people in uh, Syrians especially um, are desperate, um, you know, there's a really big smuggling economy. And so, you know, some of the guys I know are just like, they used to be like, um, you know, tradesmen or, or like low grade criminals or some combination of that, like before the war. And now they're, um, you know, trying to keep their families afloat on, on the border. Right. They, um, they don't then, give know, a shit about the terrorism. They don't care about how it's going to affect anyone else. They're just like, yeah, got to make money. I mean, you know, the ones that like are really good for ISIS are the ones that like kind of vaguely support the idea of an Islamic state. They actually kind of remind me sometimes of like Republicans with Trump, where they're like, yeah, you know, what they're pushing for ISIS is good, but they take it too far. They're like too extreme. Like I knew a lot of guys like that. Um, so, so they're like, they're like, an Islamic state's a good idea, actually. And ISIS, uh, what you know, it's good of them to try to push for one, but they've really gone astray, and you know, they need to be reined in. So that's kind of, <laughs> like that's the understatement of the year. <laughs> like, but, oh, they went know, a bit too far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, especially because you know, I, I'm, I'm talking mostly. If you look at my, what my vantage point is. You know, I'm, I, live in Ist I lived in Istanbul and I worked in southern Turkey, so a lot of my sources were Syrians. And they really had like a special kind of view on ISIS, right? Because ISIS is an Iraqi organization, first and foremost. And Syrians always had this idea that they're sort of second-class citizens in ISIS. So that, you know, even among Syri like ISIS defectors I met who were Syrians, um, they, they always had like a little bit of extra like detachment from the group because Syrians just got punished by the group, I think, more than anybody else. Right. You say about defectors. I mean, how, how seriously were they, had they defected? do you think when they just like oh we're done because they want to kind of get away it depends i mean you know I, I in the book there's a chapter on uh defectors and based on on one particular story that i thought was really compelling um and, and in this case it was a syrian um who uh you know was just like a university student when the war started chasing girls you know smoking cigarettes not like a radical guy at all and then, you know, gradually as the civil war went on, he, he, he fell into extremism just because, you know, it seemed, I, I guess you could sort of see it from his perspective, like his family was getting killed in airstrikes and, and every, you know, there was looting and there was just like complete disorder. And all of a sudden ISIS comes and they say, you know, we're going to impose order, eye for an eye, code of justice, like, you know, cut off a thief's hand if he steals. Like that, and all, he found that very appealing when he was like at his lowest point. And from there, like really radicalized to the point where he was actually part of the um, Yazidi genocide. He was a, a field commander for ISIS, and he was he went into Sinjar with like the first wave of ISIS troops that took it in Iraq in 2014. Jesus, um, that, that's quite a jump. Yeah, and, you know, but so what happened though is like he was he witnessing that massacre like shocked him, you know. And it, it, it was like, it, it convinced him, like, it was, it's almost like, I think of it like you're, you're dreaming and all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, holy shit. 
um, what, you know, what's, where's my, where has my brain been, you know, in the middle, you know, from a, like waking up from a nightmare. And so he, you know, by the time he left ISIS, he was completely against the group and still is. And, and he just almost from like, you know how like, um, people who are like Catholic some, some sometimes become like the most ardent atheists. Um, you know, th- there are ISIS defectors like that. And like he was where, because he'd seen it up close and because he'd been, you know, sort of brainwashed by ISIS, he was, he was really against it. Um, by the time he by the time he left, but you know, in the story that we were discussing earlier, like in 2017, when people were escaping because the caliphate's falling apart and and U.S. troops are, um, you know, uh, and Kurdish Kurdish soldiers are like closing in Iraq, those guys, I think, you know, it was it was really like a mix. Like a lot of them were just, hey, um, it's you know, this isn't going well, so we're going to leave. And you know, when you know when you're in the community of Syrian refugees in Turkey. You know, if you, you should say you're a defector because those that community really is anti-ISIS. Right. Yeah. It, may, it makes it a lot easier, you know, for those. Yeah. You don't want to say you're still supporting them. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing that I again, this is why I wanted to talk to you so much. And you mentioned it yourself at the start. All of your work is based from the ground. Now, I don't want to get, you know, I do enough moaning on Twitter, but I do think there's a huge problem where so-called experts who've never stepped foot in Syria often get the biggest voice when it comes to reporting on ISIS and what have you. So maybe maybe you can tell us, you know, what kind of advantage do you think you've had from actually reporting all of this from the ground and for so long as well? Yeah, you know, it was when I haven't been in the region for two years. Like I, I completely burned out, um, as you might sense if you finish the book, you know, like and, and so I moved here two years ago and I've just been writing the book and, and uh, you know, based out of D.C. And when the news in Syria started, I felt like I shouldn't say anything, you know, like because I haven't been out there in two years. Um, but I, you know, like you're mentioning, I realized that you know, so much of the discussion, especially even like from the U.S. government and like, you know, their bully pulpit is, is, is led by people who have absolutely no experience at all. Um, overseas. And so, so I, I did end up, you know, doing some stories and some coverage just being like, well, at least, you know, I, I did manage to spend, you know, all this time over there and still relevant knowledge. Um, but there's definitely like that kind of, I, I feel it myself like that, you know, you, you could feel, you, you could feel how it's easy to slip into like the world of like bullshit pontificator, you know? Um, um, but, it's very you know, and, weird. And, Sorry, I was just gonna say, it's very, <laughs> it's very weird to me. I just, I don't know if there was ever a point in time where someone could say i am an expert on this having never been let alone into the region where the war is but not even into the country like i just don't i can't get my head around it there are things you know yourself more than even i do that there are things you'll see at war that just tell you like even the way someone perhaps moves their face as they talk about something you know what i mean can tell you so much more than what they're actually saying it's like I, Come on, like with a thing like war, I really think yeah. you have to at least be around for a bit of it. Yeah, and also like I'm not an expert. I don't, you know, and if, yeah, I, no, ever, yeah, if, I, I, if I anyone ever sees yeah. me call myself one, like come and kick my ass, please. Um, yeah. But, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Y- y- but like really like, you know, and if you, if you, you know, the way I did my work overseas and the way the book is focused, um, it, it's really like if I was writing about something, like I had to see it. Um, cause I, I just think if you don't, you miss stuff, um, especially in a war zone. And so like, if I did oil smuggling as a topic, I would spend, I, I think I spent three months straight on that story and I wouldn't write it unless I went and actually watched where ISIS was smuggling oil because I was like, otherwise I can't understand it. Right. And, and actually, so like the result of that was that I understood, you know, not only how it worked and had, you know, a credibility to my sources who, who were talking to me and ultimately led me there, but also to like, you know, we had photos, we had videos, we had, we, we, we really showed what it looked like. But like, if you looked at the reports 
and the statements from the U.S. government about ISIS oil smuggling, you would probably think it's like this big professional operation and they have like, you know, gleaming uh, like oil tankers bringing the oil across the border from Syria. It was so the opposite of that. It was just like gritty. It well, tell was us, like, what, what did you see? What was it like, you know, the, the ISIS yeah, oil smuggling? Yeah, we, we get in the car uh, in, a, in a van. Um, my uh, I had a driver who had this like soccer mom style, like green minivan that was just you, you would think it could be like a, you know, you know, like a, a mom or a dad bringing their kids to, to practice, except that it was just completely dusty and, and beat to hell. Um, and and we, we get in this van and like um, I, I'm sitting in the back with my photographer and we're just hoping nobody notices us. And they, we drive to where with the smugglers to where the um, the oil uh, is, is kind of coming across the border. And it's like it's a town that is like right on the border where they have a long decades long history of smuggling because on you know, the border, the border with who, sorry, with, with Syria, uh, and, you know, with, because between Turkey and Syria. It was, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry yeah. Between Turkey and Syria. And they uh, as soon as we enter like this, it's like it's, it's literally like a dead end road. Like it winds through the town and then it ends at the border. You can't, you know, so there's only one way in and then you have to go back out the same way, which is actually quite scary if you're if you're trying to sneak in because, you know, there's there's like not really a way out if they catch you. Um, and so as soon as we get on the road, it's like what strikes me is there's garbage everywhere, like piled up on the street. And it was because the the um, the people who controlled the town, there's like a mafia family that controlled the town, wouldn't even let the um, garbage collectors in, right? Like no no representative of the government is allowed to come into this town. And so that like just seeing that right there tells you a lot, right? It tells you that there's some level of local corruption going on. It tells you that the, that the Turkish government, local government, is purposely turning a blind eye to what's happening there because they're not even sending garbage collectors. Um, and, and then, you know, we, so then we get to the end of as, as we're driving along the, the, um, the road, you know, we see uh, like it's, it's kind of like your traditional like squat stone houses, you know, at the beginning of the of the town or the village. And then as you get closer, like the walls start getting bigger. You start seeing like two story houses, new construction. And I, there was a gate open like, you know, they have like I saw like a Mercedes or a BMW brand new behind one of the gates. And so you can start to realize you know, how much profit they're making from this, from this trade and how it's like, sort of like this, um, you know, like very small town, local mafia style of like glitz that they're, that they're, that they're pumping up now. And then when we got there, like, it's like, you know, it was these pipes, like, um, the size of your fist, like a hydra heads, like coming up from under the dirt that were pouring out the oil, like really slowly. And, and the, and like the guys that were, um, they were filling up like these dusty jerry cans and, um, you, you know, they, they're covered in grime and like they're, they're they were, uh, they were take, there was a, there was like a bus, like one of these mini buses that, that goes around the region. Um, and they had, they had like outfitted it with extra tanks so they could hold a lot of oil and they were filling it up. And I mean, part of the, the insight I got from that and from other work like this, where I, where I did similar stuff with like antiquities trading was like, what, what ISIS's strength is, is the desperation of the war. Like they, they are tapping into like low level operations and desperation in towns like this all across the border, rather than having like one big gleaming operation that you could hit with an airstrike. Um, and, and so like, you know, what I learned from that is just sort of the, the way that ISIS was always going to sort of be able to, to exist and to, and to tap networks like this, as long as there's enough desperation to go around. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I would have thought of it much differently had I not gone and seen it.
Yeah, of course, of course. It always it always seems different until you see it. Um, and and were these the oil guys? Were they like working? I don't know. Were they like ISIS oil people, or were they just like locals that have been forced to work for them, or or had to work for them just to make money, or they, what? What was the operation like? The operation. So I only saw the Turkish side. I, the operation on the Turkish side was um, like people who work for the local like family slash mafia that controlled that town. Um, and and they you know so the ISIS link is just financial there. Mm. Um, and, and they had been doing that, like the matter, like whoever controlled the oil at the time, like they would do the same operation. So there it's just like, they're just shifting with whoever's in control at, at the time. And then, um, it, it was similar with like artifact smuggling. Like it's like the people who were selling artifacts, you know, in some cases, ISIS had their own trade people who were trading it and digging and digging for antiquities and stuff. But like a lot of them were like people who would buy artifacts from ISIS. They would buy artifacts from uh, the regime. They would buy artifacts from the FSA, the, 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 the rebel group that the U.S. backed. Like it, it didn't really matter to them. Right. And where was the oil being sold? Who to who? Just all it all disappeared into the filling stations around um, southern Turkey. So, so they, they, they mix it in with the, the regular um, fuel to, to like, uh, to, so it's like local corruption, like for the most part, like little, uh, little filling stations just kind of cutting their own uh, fuel with it because Turkey has really high fuel prices. Also, like as I was driving around doing this investigation for three months with this driver in this minivan, he only used uh, smuggled oil to, to drive because it was cheaper. And so he actually had like this encyclopedic memory of every black market. They also had like their own black market filling station. So you could go to the normal one and get like the oil cut with Syrian oil, or you could go and, um, or the fuel cut with Syrian fuel, or you can go to like, you know, like there'd be like a Syrian restaurant and then behind the restaurant would be like a little stand and there'd be like a dude sleeping in a shack and he'd like bang on the door and the guy would come out with, uh, with the fuel. So, so it was also that sort of um, underground economy. Yeah, I remember uh, in Jizra 2015 when we first went, the Kurds were doing the same thing basically. You know, mm -hmm. they, they had, their, like you go to the border, back then the big wall and that wasn't there and there's just like two lads just like, yeah, drive yeah. around the bit and they throw a tarpaulin up, you know what I mean? It's fascinating. So um, you could, I mean, you could look, you could look at something like that and say, oh, so it's not that, that, that big of a deal for ISIS, right? And, or, you know, cause it's not such a sexy looking thing. Exactly. But like the flip side, the flip side of that is like, no, actually this kind of um, like, like very widespread low grade smuggling is actually much harder to stop than, than, than like a big operation. And that's, that's, I think, part of ISIS's uh, genius, just tapping into stuff like that. Yeah, and it is everywhere. Like, I remember, I, I think in Southeast Turkey, I think it's something like the unemployment is three times worse there than anywhere else. So for a lot of them, it's the only way they can make money. Do you know what I mean? And obviously they're, yeah. they're, they're smuggling the oil from Rojava, from the Kurds rather than ISIS, but there are poor people everywhere all over that border. Do you know what I mean? That whole right. region, it's, it's not yeah, a so situation. Right, so it's like stopping the problem is not like bombing oil refineries necessarily. Like it's like fixing the the war itself, right? So as long as there's this instability, ISIS has a foothold. Yeah, definitely. Um, Mike, you you spoke about the uh, the uh, Iraqi special forces that you were embedded with, um, and you said they're you know they're kind of fallen apart or at least been their unit been taken apart. Um, tell us about them because I know they feature heavily in in uh, Shatter the Nation. Yeah, so. Um, in Mosul, myself and a photographer embedded with the lead unit of the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And, and so it's basically like the most elite uh, battalion of soldiers in Iraq. And, and these are guys that were founded, this unit was founded in 2005 
by um, U.S. Green Berets and special operations troops because they needed people to go and kick down doors with them and do, um, you know, roll up ISIS network, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, ISIS's predecessors' networks uh, during the Iraq War. So some of these guys that I was with had been working alongside U.S. troops or fighting America's wars in one way or another for, I think at that point, like 12 years, almost straight. Um, and, you know, it's... It's kind of important to, to understand their background. Like, these are, if, if you think, like, these are, spe I say they're Iraqi special operations troops. Like, that's the name of their uh, the overall division is ISOF. And this is, like, their equivalent, especially the battalion I was with, it was, like, their equivalent of, like, SEAL Team 6 or the Delta Force, where they're really designed to just do really specific high-value target raids, like, go and, go and get, like, a Baghdadi-style figure or someone really high up in the chain of command or do hostage rescues and things like that. But when ISIS came and invaded Iraq from uh, Syria in 2014 and took Mosul, you know, I think people forget now, like they were like on the edge of Baghdad. Like they, there was a real risk. I was in Baghdad at the time. There was a, everyone, you know, there was a, there was a real risk that they were going to take like the whole country because the Iraqi military just collapsed and they were tearing off their uniforms and it was a complete disaster. The only people who really like held the line were, were these special operations forces. And they, they went from kind of, years of doing just really well-planned, well-executed missions like the Delta Force would uh, to all of a sudden just being in the middle of like street fights. And so you had soldiers who had been, you know, survived for like a decade um, and units that had taken very little casualties over a decade because they were so careful in their planning, all of a sudden losing like 10 people at a time into like an IED. Um, and so it was just like a real... Um, like disaster for them, but they were the only people who would do it. And by the time I went with them in 2014, they had basically just accepted that they were uh, like a ground force. And because the Iraqi military, despite all this extra U.S. training that had been poured into the country and, and you know, money, were still so weak, uh, they were still relying on, on these guys to be the tip of the spear into Mosul and to do most of the fighting. Um, and so they would go in and clear neighborhoods, and then the Iraqi military later would come and just like kind of camp out there. Um, and so, so th those are the guys I was with. And by, by, you know, by the middle of the Mosul battle, they had taken so many casualties that they just like, like wounded soldiers were just like continuing to fight. And if they were a, U a U.S. unit, they would have been like months earlier pulled back because they would have been considered combat ineffective. Right. Yeah. Not ideal at all. And what happened it's, to it's, them yeah. after the war? I mean, they, you know, they lost so many of their, like, you know, members of their officer corps who were, you know, which is like the real strength of any unit, uh, their mid-level officer corps. And they, um, you know, were just like really decimated. And there's, a, there's an effort now to rebuild them by the U.S. But, I mean, it's really hard to, to account for the lost experience and like, you know, retraining a group like that and getting them battle tested and, and giving them real experience, like, it takes years. Um, so, so there, I, I think like the, the, the story for them now is like, they're just like really badly weakened. Um, and like, that was, you know, I think, you know, people sort of misunderstand, I think what the war meant to ISIS for the caliphate. Like, I, I think you got to remember, like at a certain point, like ISIS knew it wasn't going to hold Mosul and Raqqa. Like this was not going to last, you know, they, they have such a long-term vision though. They, you know, they, they wanted their, their goal became not holding these cities for the long term, but making the battle as bloody as possible, as destructive as possible and killing as many of the soldiers like the guys I was with so that 
they would face less pressure from them, you know, five years, 10 years down the line. So they were trying really, there was a real effort to like kill as many U.S. allies as you can. Um, and unfortunately, they were really successful at that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions specifically um, in what happened in Mosul as well, you know. Um, obviously, there were some horrific uh, situations where U.S. forces, planes, bombed civilian areas, just flattened them. Um, but obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. Maybe you can talk on you know, your time actually in the battle for Mosul. Yeah, you know, I did a lot of reporting on civilian casualties too. And, um, you know, I, I, I would say like, it, it also, it, how deadly the battle was for civilians depended on, you know, to a large extent on which Iraqi force was fighting in an area. So the guys that I was with, they really, and, and like, you know, the kind of embeds I was doing, like where I'm, I'm, I'm actually at some point, like in the attacking convoys, like first, first, you know, a few Humvees into ISIS territory. Um, you know, they're not they're not putting on a show for a reporter after a certain point, right? Like you're really they're really just trying to like fight and not die. Yeah, and um, it's like you're there. Yeah, and like you know, going back to what I said earlier about really wanting to see it, like that, you know, that's why I'm I'm there and doing that kind of embed because I I really want to get an accurate picture as possible by seeing it with my own eyes, like what's happening. And they 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 really actually took a lot of concern um, about civilians and and trying not to cause an inordinate amount of civilian casualties. Um, and, you know, they were calling in airstrikes, U.S. airstrikes as they went, but they were careful. Um, and so they they led the battle, especially in eastern Mosul, which was the first half of the city that was taken. Um, and there were civilian casualties, right? And, like, I, I documented it, and I got the U.S. to admit to, I think, 36 civilian deaths from their strikes. Um, but it was like, if you were in a neighborhood, it would be like, this house is standing, this house is standing, this one is collapsed. This house is standing. This house is standing. The next one's collapsed. So, so like, you know, it was it was terrible. And and you know, some of the houses might have had ISIS fighters, and others might have had families where there was bad intelligence or an errant strike or what have you. But the you know the the residents appreciated that there had been care taken not to make the battle too deadly. And they were actually because this destruction was bad but not overwhelming. They were able like like life was able to return to eastern Mosul like really quickly. Western Mosul, it was a different story. The the forces that were leading that part of the battle, like the, the Iraqi special forces by that point had been so broken down that they only played like a, they weren't the whole show like they were in the East, like they were just part of the equation. And then you had like the really unprofessional Iraqi units like the federal police and the, um, there was a special like counterterrorism force that the interior ministry has, I forget their name. Yeah, ER, the emergency response division, the ERD, who were like committing atrocities as they went. And like those, those forces, like they didn't care to the same level. And the destruction was just so much worse. Um, and, and also, I mean, the Eastern Mosul was the last battle of the Obama administration and Western Mosul was the first battle of the Trump administration. And Trump, uh -huh. you know, he, 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 you know, he, he likes to say that he like, you know, he defeated ISIS, but he really just followed the plan that had already been laid out, right? Like that, everything was already in motion by the time he took office. He didn't change anything except, I mean, he changed, I'm sure he changed some things that, you know, had, had like affected the battle and the pace on the edges, but like the overall strategy was already underway. One of the major changes that Trump made, though, was he loosened restrictions on airstrikes that had been intended to reduce civilian harm. And so 
because, because of that, because of the nature of the forces that were in Western Mosul, and because Western Mosul is just like denser terrain and where ISIS made its last stand, the, the picture was just so much different. Like it was, it was really just like a hellscape. Like where, I, you know, in Eastern Mosul, I said like a house here and there might be destroyed. Western Mosul, just entire blocks, like entire blocks, just completely shattered. Uh, um, Mike, if you don't mind, maybe talk about, you know, you were saying like you got burnt out. And I, I think it's something that we never really speak about on Popular Front, but it's actually something a lot of journalists feel, you know, I felt it myself, definitely. You know, you've done a hell of a lot more work out there than I have. I can't imagine what it was like, you know, like, tell us about that. What do you mean by you got burnt out? Why did you have to kind of just move out of there? I mean, I just, I think just the intensity of, of covering a, a war as it like spirals for years and, and like every day seems to be worse than the next, like eventually just, it just, it's an exhausting process, you know? Um, and also I, I you know, if, if I, I was trying to be so upfront in all this reporting, um, it ends up just taking a lot out of me, like, uh, emotionally and, and, uh, and, and like physically, um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I don't know, it, it, as you know, it's hard for a journalist ever to kind of like, talk about this kind of stuff because like I think it's like whatever I'm feeling or however tired I am like it, it must be like so much less than anybody who's actually party to the war right like um like I I recount like a, a situation where we got car bombed um and we should we should have died right like the only reason the car bomb didn't hit us is because it like it caught its edge on the on like the it, it got like it got stuck as it was turning a corner to come and kill us um and like, you know, after that, I, 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 I was like, I, I was talking to my photographer and it was like, it was like the closest call I ever had, but also like the, the last in a, like a long series of close calls. And I was like, I think I'm done, man. Like, I, I feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm pushing my luck. You know, I used up all my nine lives and like, you know, to the point where like now I won't even drive without a seatbelt um, yeah, you know, around my, yeah. my, my quiet neighborhood because I just feel like I, I used up all my luck. But like, so, you know, I, like I was like, I, 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 I feel burned out. But like, if you think about the soldiers I was with, you know, I, I'm like, okay, I'm done, I'm out. They, they just go do the same thing every day, you know, for months after that and for months before that. Um, and so that, like, just like, it's in the book, actually, the very next day after this whole, like, dramatic thing where, where, we, where you know, all of us in the Humvee were just literally, like, the, you know, the car bombs coming at us and, and like, you know, it's bad when your gunner isn't firing. Like, he literally just, he closed the hatch and came down and I looked at him, I was like, oh, fuck, you know, like, if he, if he gave up, if he gave up, like, you know, we're done. Because we, we were stuck against the berm. We couldn't go anywhere. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I ended up staying at the base the next day um, with the photographer, just like, I, you know, kind of catching our breath. But the, the guys in the Humvee, uh, the driver burst his eardrum in the explosion, so he stayed with us. But the, uh, the the two other guys that were with us, they they went back out in the same Humvee, um, and like we're sitting there like having tea. The I think it was like it was like twelve or one o'clock the next day in the afternoon, and I just see a tow truck coming tr with our hum with our Humvee, and it's it's crumpled like a paper cup, um, and the the guys uh, told me what happened. Like they got chased again by a car bomb. Like same scenario. And they, they ditched at the last minute and they managed to, and the car bomb hit the Humvee and, and you know, would have killed them. They, they like literally like, you know, Wait, they on probably foot. had a couple seconds to They literally to get just out. run off on, they ditched it on foot. That's how they, they got away. Yeah. They, they, so they hit, a, wow. there's burn, like the, there's like, you know, barricades and berms all over these neighborhoods. So they, they actually got chased through the streets for like five minutes, I think it sounded like. Jesus and, um, the, the car bomb, like, um, you know, these car bombs, by the way, they're like, 
I, I don't know like what you're thinking when I say carbon, but they're the apartment SVBIDs, right? The big yeah, Mad they're, Max they're, types. Yeah, like Mad Max is really what it looks like. Like they're like up armored in factories. So they're like, I don't know what the car originally was, but they had these like big shiny armor on them and they paint them actually this like gleaming like white color a lot of times because they want to look like a civilian vehicle to the um, drone feeds overhead. And then they have like steel across the windshield so you can't even see who's driving them. And they're like really these kind of like horrible futuristic um, or dystopian looking things. And, but you know, so th these guys are getting chased by it and they, they, they eventually like hit a dead end in a barricade and they, they, they jumped out of the um, Humvee at the last second and dove behind the building. And, you know, they were all covered in dirt and their hair was standing up and stuff, but they, they survived. But it's like, you know, you could sit here as a reporter and be like, yeah, you know, I've seen some shit or whatever. I've, I've done some, some really dangerous stuff, but it's like, it's, it's such a small piece compared to what these guys are doing, you know? And they, I just, they were doing it every single day. So that day they came back, the Humvees destroyed. The next day they go out again, the next day they go out again. And it was like that for them for like, you know, 12 years, 13 years with like little pauses here and there when the fighting stopped or when the U.S. ended the war before the next one started. Yeah, I mean, it is a cliched thing to say and everybody says it, but it is so true. Like the, the people there are going through that all the time. You know, like you said, it's like, right, yeah. my time's done, I'm out. Like they, even civilians can't go anywhere. You know, it's like to, yeah. to rest is resting under the possibility of their home getting bombed. You know what I mean? It's it's a, yeah, real, exactly. it's a real nightmare. It really struck me yeah. actually when, when I was in Rojava like recently and and there was some guy there who was going on about his friend had died in the war. And obviously it's very sad, but he's like trying to appeal to these Kurds and like, poor me, poor me. And uh, my friend said, like, look at this guy. Like, he's going on about this. Like, he's the only guy in the world. Like, every one of them has a martyr in their family. You know what I mean? It's like, like our fixer, you know, she, her brother had died in the war, you know? And it's like, no one is there to be like, oh, look at me, look at me, you know? So it is very... Um, I don't know, it, it, there's there's a very different perspective I think you get from actually someone that lives there, you know, and they have to live under it every day. I don't know how they do it, basically. I really don't. Yeah, no, I don't either. I mean, you know, like I'm, uh, one of the characters in the book is actually, I, I worked in um, in Turkey with a Syrian journalist, like we shared bylines. Um, and, you, you know, I like, um, I, I actually made him, you know, a character in the book because it's like, he you know, his background is just his, his own background. He's from Dara where the, where the protests started in, um, um, in Syria. Like he, he was tortured, um, and, and like in an underground prison and all completely traumatized before in, he uh, regime, regime prison in regime prison. Yeah. And like, so, you know, even like as a journalist, like he's going through the same things, you know, we're doing the same things together, but he has this whole crazy history mm. of, of what happened to him. And like, you know, every interview we're doing about what's happening in Syria is like about what's happening to his own country. You know, like I, I no matter how much I, I care about Syria or I, I have people I love who like him, you know, who were who affected by the war and like, you know, this stuff really depresses me. But like, it's like you always have that distance, at least that it's like, you know, it's not my country in the end. Um, and, and so I think you, you get spared the by, by far the worst of the worst of it. Um, and 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 also like, you know, I, I use this in the book, actually, like to say, um, you know, the, the fact that I left shows, you know, kind of like the, the problem with America and Britain and, and, and all these countries that, that fight in these places, like that, that you can, no matter how involved you think you are, you can always leave. And just the fact that you have that option will always make you approach the war differently. Yeah. Um, and I think we see that, like the, the, why can the U.S. and its allies like never finish the job in Iraq and Syria? Because it, it, it like it's, it's hard and they lose interest at some point. We lose political will at some point because ultimately it's a war of choice. No matter how much we think ISIS is a threat or, or why we went out there, like it's a war of choice. And like, 
you know, I, I think there's some there's some part of that in my own story, and like it, it, I think it kind of gets at the question of like, you know, what, why why can't we finish and, and and actually solve the problem in these countries? That's a really good point. Yeah, I, I never thought of it like that. It is at the end of the day, it's like yeah, fuck it, we're done, we're out. See you later. Like we they can yeah. like you said, you can just go anytime. Um, yeah, and that's what I did, right? Like I'm I'm here now, I'm safe, and like you know, this is still going on. Yeah, definitely. Um, Mike, you have this really, you know. I wouldn't say like completely unique because other reporters have done this, of course, but like a really great perspective on the conflict from being on the ground and understanding it in all different parts. Um, what do you make now of the current situation? And perhaps, you know, I'm not asking you to predict anything, but where do you feel like this is all headed? Um, you know, this so-called war on ISIS that is allegedly finished. I, you know, I, I think it's it's not finished, unfortunately. And like, you know, you don't want to you don't want to sound like somebody calling for a forever war, right? But I think you can you can say like yeah U.S. troops and U.S. presence shouldn't be out there forever. But you gotta you gotta at least finish the job. And and to me it's like it's not just rolling up all the ISIS networks that exist in Syria and also Iraq, like which is what the U.S. has been doing and what what they need to continue doing if we're going to really see a lasting defeat of ISIS. But like rebuilding these areas um, and like stabilizing them and really helping the government like take control back. But like none of that's happening or, or like it's, it's like the efforts are just not enough. So, you know, now the, the future of any U.S. backed stabilization efforts in, in Syria that were underway in Kurdish areas is, is completely in jeopardy. Um, but like even in Iraq, where like the government has welcomed the U.S. troops and has, has, has invited them, it's much easier, you know, country than Syria to operate. Like there's still rubble um, there, in Sunni cities. Like the, these places are still de- destroyed. Like I was speaking to an Iraqi analyst at the Atlantic Council a couple of weeks ago. He told me that there are still bodies uh, beneath the rubble in a lot of places. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of especially. I mean, that alone should tell you where the the u.s commitment really is like how or to what level it really is at like they've tried to raise some money they've made some efforts to like you know do some stabilization work but like i mean if the america was really focused on trying to make a lasting you know secure um uh stabilized uh situation in iraq like i, I mean would, would, would there still be people buried under rubble in, in the cities that you need to win like popular support back? Like it's like, and, and that's just like the one example. I mean, you can imagine the education system, the infrastructure system, the economy, all that um, is just still a mess in these places. So what's different? Because if you look at Afghanistan, yeah, I mean, it's an absolute mess beyond all belief, but America has actually tried to do some of this rebuilding and all this state building kind of crap um, that they, they, they talk about. Why is that not really happening the same way in Iraq and Syria? Is it just too soon or what? I mean, Iraq, they've been there forever. Oh, yeah, I, you know, true. Yeah, of one course. way or another, yeah. And also, like, I, I've never worked from Afghanistan, so I don't, I don't really know, like, the, uh, my, myself, like, how to compare it that well. But, like, you know, from, from, from the perspective of Iraq, like, America's been there off and on for since 2003. Mm. Um, and it just, like, it, it's, it's a real testament to the fact that, that they just can't get it right. And, you know, I was, I was asking, I've been asking, I'm actually writing an article about this. I'm going to publish it, I think later this week or early next about, you know, what is it that they keep getting wrong? And, and like, it, I, I don't know, it sounds like an easy journalist thing to say, I think, where you're like, it's, you know, it's the, it's, it's fixing the, the actual, um, like fundamental problems in these countries and, and, and kind of like acknowledging that it's partly America's responsibility to do that. So it's, you know, education system, economic system, like, you know, 
giving them political uh, backing to to really like shore up their government and and to and to make it an effective government, like those efforts have just never succeeded. And I don't I don't think I don't think America has really I don't think it's been the focus of U.S. efforts to the extent that like you know killing ISIS has been. Yeah, but it, it, it's such a biz- yeah that's true like kill ISIS. But then you have this bizarre situation now where you got these with Turkey I'm talking about in Rojava or, or northeast Syria whatever where like literally. The, mil- the, the militias that they're sending in are employing the same kind of jihadist tactics. And I just think surely America realizes this is going to backfire eventually. You know, like I mean, the, it's just massive. every single I think every single person in the national security establishment in the U.S. or most of them could have told you that this was going to be a disaster, mm. in, you know, with the Turkish incursion. You know, with the fighters they back, with the fact that Erdogan has is absolutely an irresponsible actor and has no ability to really uh, govern well in Turkey, let alone in Syria, whatever he's trying to carve out as a protectorate. Like, you know, it, it's just it's. But I, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's Trump who's making the call, right? Is but, that like, what it is? This, it, it, to me, it seemed like he literally just made the call on his own without talking to anyone, but. Is that, surely that can't be true. I mean, that's that's as as I see it playing out. Like that 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 has been the case. Like, like why is it that the U.S. military is all of a sudden saying now we're going to stay in in Syria with six hundred troops? I said that today, and we're going to protect the oil facilities and and all that because it's like this was the damage control that they had to do after Trump's kind of like snap decision, and this is like what they could you know salvage basically, and it, and it shows you that that like they're everyone is reacting after the fact to Trump's decision. Like, you know, if you, if Trump had said like, Hey, I'm going to pull out the troops on this date and given the clear deadline, you know, they could have at least planned for it. Right. But the way it played out, like the U S special operations troops were retreating. The word in the New York times was retreating as the Turkey back fighters uh, poured into the country, right. They poured into the Kurdish, the Kurdish regions, right. Like, like this was not planned. They were like, they they had to do airstrikes to destroy the ammunition they left behind. Well, yeah. A French French base (laughs) even got shelled by Turkey. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's complete madness and it showed really no planning whatsoever. And like, you know, to the point that you're putting us uh, uh, lives at risk in the, in the complete lack of planning. Like the, there was a story in the times that said the Turkey back fighters had fired on retreating us troops. Like I, I, like I couldn't believe I was reading that. Like that, that's really something else. It's incredible. Like it's such a mess. Um, I, I almost can't believe that it happened the way it happened, you know? Yeah, it was shocking. Uh, I read um, that um, one of the SDF spokesmen, one of the ma- main guys, uh, or, or no, sorry, commanders, found out on Twitter. <laughs> like he just didn't even get told, you know? I mean, I did. I, I remember when Trump killed the CIA program, um, which, by the way, is like you, you could, by, at that point, not a controversial decision, right? Yeah. The, um, but like, you know, the CIA program that had been backing the. You know, um, I'm right. What's that? The, the train and equip programs. Yeah. Um, so the, like, I, I called some of the rebel commanders who've been on that program for years when the announcement came out and like no one had told them. They like saw it in the media. Wow. You know? it's, it's embarrassing um, really. You know? It's just, it's just like what it really reinforces is this idea that I, 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 I think has, has been, um, reinforced throughout the war like anybody who gets throws their lot with uh with the americans is is gonna eventually be uh probably killed or run out of the country um because the u.s support like you know i, I think you know it was it, it was the case with the rebels right who, who had u.s backing it's the case now with the kurds 
Um, and it, it's, it was the case with like the pro-democracy activists who were getting State Department training and, and, and the white helmets and all these people. It's like I, I, I kind of always have this heartbreaking feeling, or at least early in the war, like when I'm talking to Syrians who like, you know, consider America to be like their natural ally and, and, and listen to like the rhetoric that's coming from like the Obama administration saying they support the protesters and then watching like State Department money come into the country. Like they, 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 they think that they maybe by, by aligning with the American cause, like they get this, they're going to have this protection like they're, you know, like global citizens of, of the new Rome, you know. Mm. Um, but actually, actually, it's the opposite. Like it just puts a target on their backs and America's American support is only like to a degree, right? And 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 over the entire war, like the U.S. has just really looked on as like anybody who worked with America has been targeted by every side, right? The regime, the uh, other rebel groups, the ISIS, like they, they've all been sort of like systematically, um, you know, driven out of the country and killed by this point. Yeah. Now you know the Kurds are feeling it as well. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. Um, yeah. Mike, is there anything else you think uh, you want to talk about here that we haven't covered? Um, no, that's it, man. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad you're reading the book. You know, if, if any of your um, listeners pick it up, you know, I appreciate it if you guys leave a review on, on Goodreads or Amazon. And um, I'm just happy to have people kind of paying attention and, and checking it out. Yeah, man, definitely. Well, thank you very much for sending it. I've been reading your work for years, man. So when I picked the book up, it was nice to read it in that context. I, I mean, I've nowhere near finished, man. I think I've done like the first chapter. But it's like nice to read it in that context of like, ah, this is a book rather than you having to get everything in the, in the article. You know, it's a very different way of writing. It feels to me more like a long form, like magazine piece kind of style. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I definitely think people yeah, should no, buy it. Yeah, I appreciate it. that. Yeah, it's great, yeah, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. You know, it's, it's nice to be able, after covering it in, in, from a news perspective for so long, it's nice to be able to just say, okay, what do I want to say? What, 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 what do people need to know that I know in order to have the understanding that I do of what's going on out there? Exactly. So I had a chance just to kind of unwind and do that. It's really nice. And if people want to buy it, where can they, where's the best place to get it? Amazon or what? Uh, yeah, Amazon. Amazon is the best place. Um, or, you know, Barnes & Noble um, is also a good spot. And, is it uh, out? It's any, not out any, yet, right? It's out. It's out in the U.S. It's it's gonna. The publication date in the U.K. is November twenty eighth. Um, yeah, mate. Where if people yeah. want to get hold of you, um, where where can they do that? Uh, Twitter, all of that stuff. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter, and then um, on my Twitter bio, you can see my my email address. And so if anybody you know checks out the book or has thoughts otherwise on coverage, I'm always happy to, to hear from people. Actually, I made like a really a lot a lot of nice connections so far, which is people who have read the book and are interested and get in touch. So brilliant. Okay, mate. Thank you very much, mate. All right. Thanks a lot, man. That was Mike Giglio speaking about ISIS oil, Iraqi special forces, smuggling from Turkey to Syria. Definitely do check his book out, Shatter the Nations. And if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, as always, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. The higher it gets on there, the more work we can do. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront. You get loads of extras like bonus episodes, narrated articles, um access to the the discord which is you know like a big research hub now it's amazing so yeah patreon.com slash popular front uh thank you very much to splicingblock.com they edited the sound on this episode for us um definitely check them out if you need any sound editing all of that they're very cheap um and very good so yeah splicingblock.com not very cheap i should say very affordable you know what i'm saying um, this episode was sponsored by the defensepost.com defense with an s check them out um, I think the editor just got back from Syria so they should have some coverage good coverage there soon uh, defensepost.com defense with an s follow us on instagram at instagram 
facebook.com slash popular.front um, and be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, our new documentary um, ad oil about the uh, Hong Kong protesters. The first part is up on the YouTube now, so youtube.com slash popularfront, check that out. Uh, let us know what you think about it, comment in there as well, thumbs up, all of that, press the bell to get notifications. Um, also on Twitter, we're twitter.com slash popularfrontco. Uh, or my Twitter is uh, at Jake underscore Hanrahan H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N or you can go on the website uh, www.popularfront.co Thank you very much to the following Patreons Adam Berg-Snyder Axel Iverson Azad Brian McLaughlin Chad Walker Christina Rivetti Christopher Martin Craig Miller Dan Dunham Daniel Shearer Diana Gorvanek, Eloise Larson, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jack Mayhoff, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Josh Juan Hernandez, Kay Hardy Roberts, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Lika Madik, Moody Al Rashid, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did, Cuball, Russia Al-Akidi, Rohan Abare, Ryan Sandercock, Skartoon Music, Scott Jonesy, Sebastian from the Discord, Sentry, Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, STV, Swanson, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much. Uh, if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. As I said, it really helps. Also, what does help, and you can look cool doing it, um www.popularfront.shop that is the shop that's where you can get um you know all the popular front merchandise and it really helps us keep going because as i've said a hundred times this is all grassroots we're doing this uh through crowdfunding through subscriptions through sponsorship through merchandise so far we've not had any corporate investment at all and that's not going to change um yeah so if you want to support us please do patreon.com slash popular front music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by sam black check his music out at soundcloud.com slash sun dash of dash old <laughs>